Hello and welcome to Learning, Laughing, and Loving with your co-host Evan Money and yours truly, Scott Jones. This podcast is all you need. If you're looking to learn about the world, do it with a smile and to connect to the deeper mysteries of human life and the kind of connection everyone is looking to make. Money, 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 money. Scott Kent Jones, learning, laughing, loving, and it is an exciting, tremendous, first of a kind for you and I, Scott. We have brought someone into the fold, our first official, unofficial guest. Can you believe it? I can believe it. I do believe it. I actually believe it because I, I, I see it on the screen right now. I've, I, I, I see it right here. Uh, I, it's funny. I had, I had a guy... He was interviewing for a job. Uh, a friend of my a friend of mine was a theologian. They asked him if he believed in women's ordination, and he said, "Believe in it. I've seen it done." <laughs> <laughs> so we have Paul Edwards. Paul, it's great to have you with us, and I see it, so I believe it. Scott, I, it's a it's a privilege to be the very first guest on the show with you and the money. There we the go. Money. That's where they got the money. How you doing, my friend? I am doing absolutely tremendous, and unlike, I would say, lesser podcasts, this is one where we turn it on and just have three guys with a spectacular conversation and no, you know, pre-questions or any of this stuff, and just, I'm ready to dive right into the deep end. So, Paul, I want to give you a chance, I know, because you kind of got the hair thing going, to put on your swim cap to keep it all... Nice as we dive in the deep end. Scott's got his little train conductor hat on, so I think he's ready. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to mess up my. Uh, I just had it bouffon, and I and I want to keep it that way. So I love a nice bouffon. All right, so like we'll do we'll do quick intros for the listeners. So for all, I think we're up to twenty three million now. There there could be a few at least, glitches in the decimal point. At least, so at least. Give, or, give or take a decimal point. So. Uh, Paul Edwards, a not just a not just a pretty face and an amazing voice, but what I think is so amazing is not only do you have the the tone of the great baritone, but you are a voice for others with your ghostwriting and writing capabilities. And I think we need to rename that because it's not really ghostwriting. You're like able to pull out the voice in others, which I think is the coolest thing. And what makes this such a great show is Paul, you are kind of the bridge. So. We've got Scott on, you know, a couple shows ago, Scott said something so organic and dramatic, and I've shared with so many people. Scott, remember when you were saying, you're like, gosh, Ev, we're, we're kind of opposite sides of the aisle, but we agree on so much. <laughs> and I, was like, I, thought, I, I thought you were going to talk about when I said less than helpful. Oh, <laughs> I, I we, were talking about, <laughs> we were talking about somebody that we thought was kind of, uh, you know, said some things that were just really important. I said, this person is... Uh, Less than helpful. <laughs> so that has, that has carried into the money house as well. But when you talked about, hey, we agree on so much. And what's so fascinating about Paul is coming from a, I would say, a toxic Christian background and exploring like, hey, why, why is Christianity running so far away from Judaism? As if they're like, you know, what, that's, I guess the right vernacular for that is they're not mutually exclusive, right? It's like, wait a minute, why why can't we share these great wisdoms together without saying, right? Like you have to put on a yarmulke and you have to do this. It's like, wait, there's so much more we have in common rather than this great divide and look, no, that's them and that's us. And so um, coming with you, Scott, I think this is just a perfect, perfect segue to, to bring uh, Paul into. So Paul, you are now in in fully immersed, diving into the deep end. So I wanted to have you just share a little bit kind of that deep dive that you've kind of gone into as far as Judaism and Christianity and connecting it. And then for the listener, Scott Kent Jones, would love for you to share kind of your background and how you're falling into this. So we've got these, again, the perfect bridge. So Paul, take it away. I want to hear your your journey and how you got here. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me into the deep end, Dev, because as you know, that's the only place I like to swim. Woo-hoo! And um, I'll just say, I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, <clears throat> I, I didn't know this until uh, several years ago, but even when I first learned it, I because I lived in the typical uh, churchianity fold, right? Um, when my father told me that we had a Jewish ancestor in my family line, I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then that was it. And I didn't bother to look into it. Well, you fast forward to uh, 2019, 2020, 
And somehow or other, um, I started to pay more attention to people like Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And I decided, especially from listening to him, but also from uh, other sources like the First Fruits of Zion and all that, that I discovered, you know, that they're, they're so easy to find these days. I began to look into this whole thing of how is it that you have, you know, how many thousand years of the Jewish people living in the land of Canaan or Israel as it became. Um, and, and all of that culture and traditions that continue, many of which continues to this day. Right. Um, and all of that rich heritage and it has never been eradicated. Right. It has never been wiped off the face of the earth as some in Iran have <laughs> occasionally ventured. They said they would see, like to see happen. Um, and yet it's supposed to have almost zero effect on the Christian faith. Right. We're, we're supposed to entirely divorce that, the two, and treat them as two entirely separate entities. And the only reason, and my whole thought then is, well, why have the Jewish Bible in the Christian one? Because we're, we're supposed to keep things separate. And, you know, over time, there's been a gradual reforming of that, a gradual acceptance that uh, besides just having it in there, we ought to actually read and examine what it says. Um, and, and the funny thing is, you know, you get this from Jesus himself. He said, if you believed the, the, the prophets, you would have believed me because if you believe Moses, you would have believed me because he wrote about me. So what did he write about him? Well, I suppose we better look into it. So this, this starts to progress. Then I remembered my dad had left me a folder of our genealogical background and I looked into it and I discovered, I rediscovered, I should say that I have this Ashkenazi Jewish ancestor in my family line migrated from Germany to England and married a great, 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 great grandmother of mine. And part of it was I took this, you know, that 23 and me uh, test you can take where it analyzes your spit and it tells you what your national background and heritage is. And it showed up 6% European Jewish. And I'm like, well, that's really running strong, like 10 generations later you know, for me, for me to still have that. And, um, that just sort of spurred it from there. And then I started, you know, I was, I'd been listening to Rabbi Lapp and I'd been listening to some of these other podcasts. And I said, you know what? I've, I've always known that English be betrays a lot of the meaning of Hebrew. The Semitic languages are just plain different from the Indo-European and the Latin based and the Germanic languages. And as I looked deeper into what, into some of what I was reading, I realized, oh, it doesn't just obscure it. It has no, it, it's not even on the same playing field um, as a, the more I've learned about the Hebrew language. And I, and, you know, I can tell you more than that, but the, the evolution has been, I have been drawn to a lot of the Messianic Jewish ways. I've increasingly begun to adopt that as my practices. I've increasingly begun to adopt Torah observancy at a healthy level, right? I can't, <laughs> there's a certain act done to Jewish male babies that was not done to me. And I'm not about to go and have that done. <laughs> right. Um, but other than that, uh, dietary laws, um, I observe them. I have, I have an easily upset stomach, so it makes it, it actually makes kosher makes a lot of sense for me. Um, and, Jewish blessings, learning the Hebrew language um, and understanding the differences that were been in both the Jewish Bible and the, the, the apostolic, the new Testament um, that make the distinction and say, okay, if you're born, bred, raised Jewish, then you have this degree of responsibility. And if you are a Gentile and you're not, but you want to be part of it, you're welcome. You're invited to participate to whatever extent you feel personally convicted to do so. The only condition is you may not look down on the other guy who doesn't do it. You know, you're not allowed to think, well, I'm more of a Christian than you are because I keep the Torah. So, you know, there's a, there's always a balancing act, but that's, that's the, the, the 30,000 foot view there. And, and how do it's interesting. I'm, I'm curious because in my experience, most 
observant Jews look spuriously at Messianic Jew, Jew, Judaism, right? Like there's not like, like it, it's almost like better off in, in my experience with most Jews. I know you're better off being an agnostic or, and or non-observant than being a Messianic Jew. I mean, have you experienced some of that tension as you've connected with Jews who are rooted in traditional Judaism? I can't say that I have. The closest I've I've come to that, Scott, is I, I read an occasional comment to the effect that, um, you know, the, 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 that the Gentiles are now co-opting the Jewish faith. Now, if you interpret that through a Christ-centered lens, you're going to say, well, that's exactly what was meant to happen, was the two were meant, the, the, the wall was meant to be torn down so that we could reunite and become one family. Um, if you're looking at it from an Orthodox Jewish perspective, it I think it probably depends on how much you know about what you're reading. Because every time it happens anywhere near Rabbi Lappin, he takes the opposite approach. And he says, no, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Right? This is actually, this. If, if, according to what I've read and I understand, there's supposed to come a time where... The, the world outside Israel is supposed to change their tone and, and, and actually take a, a deep and sincere interest in um, not only getting along with them, but actually finding a lot of value and, uh, and, and richness of life in adopting, right. And, and, and becoming part of Torah life. Having yeah, said that, there are a lot question, of scholars, there are a lot of scholars, right. They think that's what Paul is thinking, right. When he's, so interested in getting these gifts from like the church at Corinth back to the church at Jerusalem. He's got these pictures of the prophets like in Isaiah where the Gentiles are bringing gifts into Jerusalem. And, and a lot of scholars think Paul's got these prophecies in his mind. And, and this is why the, the relief offering to the, to this, these early Christians who are, who are Jews in Jerusalem is so important to him that he's, He's seeing these Old Testament prophecies fulfilled as he's running around the Mediterranean, planting these churches, running around, you know, making tents, and and, and he sees he sees that kind of thing going on in his imagination, in his mind, as he's, you know, collecting for the saints in Jerusalem. Yep. Yeah. Precisely. And and I and I and we're looking at it happening today. Uh, quite honestly, where certainly where there's any sort of receptivity to it, certainly the state of Israel. Um, this is not heavily publicized on the news. They're much likelier to just try and stir up controversy about them, but they are. Wait, what? I, really? <laughs> I have, I have highly, I have uh, personal friends, uh, family members, I should say, uh, who operate tourism, who operate a, you know, a pilgrimage. They're Catholic, so they do Rome, but they also do the Holy land and they, and they take, you know, groups of Christians there all the time. And they say, um, you know, they, they don't, they obviously don't welcome us as fellow Jews, but nevertheless, they're extremely welcoming. It's not like they're pushing us out and saying, no, you can't come here and we don't want you here and that kind of thing. So as long as there's receptivity to it, you know, I think it, I think it boils down to an individual, maybe an attitude, maybe it's based on prior personal experiences and and then, a, and then a degree of understanding of what the uh, what the prophets actually had to say about this. Well, Scott, you you mentioned the scholar word, and I think you've got a leg up in the scholar world than uh, all of us do. So you could be our resident scholar on the show. But tell us real quick to remind again the twenty three million listeners, give or take a few decimal points, left or right, uh, your kind of background and where you came from and where you are now. Because uh, I think that's a fascinating journey as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in addition to podcasting, I've done church work on and off for decades, and I, and I did PhD work in theology. And, and it's it's interesting because a lot of my friends, I mean, I, a couple of my friends host the most popular Jewish podcasts on the internet. It's called Unorthodox. And I, over years, I've just become friends with a lot of observant Jews, and I've learned a ton from from those interactions, theologically, spiritually, and just. Practically, it's really interesting because I was talking to Evan just before we came on. I had this experience yesterday where uh, some friends who work at Arizona State University invited me to this webinar that they were hosting. Uh, it was several scholars who were all in sort of um, 
they were all at the intersection of sort of philosophy, religion, and public life, or, or science and, and religion and public life. And they had Rabbi, Lord, Lord Rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, um, give a talk, and who is, of course, the former chief rabbi of the UK. And I think he just retired from that role. And, and this guy is a brilliant philosopher, theologian, and he's amazing. His new book is called Morality, where he's talking about, um, he was talking about how do we have morality in a multicultural society? And he made this great point. He said, he has this wonderful British accent. He's, 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 he's got the least Jewish accent you've ever heard. He's, he's <laughs> regal kind of, but he talked about, uh, he talked about Shua and is it Shua and Pura. The, um, he said, look, when people look back for examples of, civil disobedience. I don't go to Thoreau. I go to the book of Exodus. And he's talking about these midwives um, who refused mm-hmm. to kill the, the, the Israelite babies. And he made this point. He said, if you look in the Hebrew Bible, that morality is universal and holiness is particular. So Ooh, he said, that again. Like, Ooh, wait, wait, say that again. Say that again. His point was morality is universal Mm. And holiness is particular. So, so for the Hebrew Bible, the, you know, the fact that we're supposed to love all that God has made and deal with justice and equity and compassion with the world, that's on everybody. But it's not on everybody to observe Torah in the sense of, you know, dietary things. Or, or So he said, and he said, that's how he makes sense of his faith in a multicultural world. He says we need a universal morality because that's the way he thinks the biblical tradition looks at morality. But holiness is particular. So he doesn't try to push a certain kind of Sabbath observance on everybody. But he does think we, we, we need a moral language. And he, no, says, and he made this really great point that he said what, we've, he said what we lost is in, in our kind of multicultural capitalist, you know, rat race societies, like we have competition which is important in the market. And competition, which is important in politics, but we've lost this third sphere of cooperation, which is the sphere of morality, mm-hmm. where we come together and try to figure out what's the good for the whole. And, and he really thinks there's a lot of lessons that the Hebrew Bible can teach us all about how to get back to a kind of universal morality in a pluralistic world. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, th- and that, is, that is exactly how I have interpreted everything that I've learned. Um, one of the first things that I that really resonated me when I um, started interacting with Rabbi Lappin was he get put forward this uh, example from Deuteronomy, I believe, or it might be, excuse me, it might be Leviticus, where God says to the Israelites, sprinkle all your offerings with salt. And he asked, you know, of course, the rabbis, when they meditate on this, they ask the question, okay, well, why salt? What's wrong with... Um, potassium or, you know, paprika or lemon peppered, you know, chipotle or whatever, right? Why salt? And the answer is in the physical reality that is, that mirrors the spiritual reality. And the, the, the physical reality of salt, sodium and chloride are two toxic chemicals that by themselves are poisonous when consumed, but you put them together they work together to form a compound that is tasty, delicious, and nutritious when consumed and has a variety of other uses. And the whole point, just to go back to what you're saying there, Scott, is that cooperation, competition without cooperation is toxic, right? And so we, exactly. I mean, that's, the, and the, the, the Tanakh is loaded with stuff like this. It is, it is the original personal development program. <laughs> right and and if you look deep enough right every time you hear these personal development gurus come out and they've got something you know they've got a, a, something that's that works and it's, it contains that truth that's where they're getting it from it's just english doesn't english betrays that um and and we don't attend churches that teach us what the hebrew actually means they might they don't even teach us half the time what the english means it, they teach us what it says, but they don't teach us why it says it. Mm. And that's the that's what made my um, my faith so 
unfulfilled and, and hollow for many years. And even like this morning, I was reading Revelation, and I'm still I'm still like, Lord, I just I I don't understand this. And but unlike where I could go to um, an Orthodox Jewish rabbi to to get some insight on this, I'm like, I gotta I gotta find a messianic teaching on this because otherwise, I end up thinking, you know, all this fairy tale. I get this fairy tale gobbledygook imagery when I'm trying to picture what's going on. And many times it's not fairy tale gobbledygook imagery. It's actually very real things, kind of like the physical things we're, we're experiencing, right? We're getting, we're getting previews of it or some of it we may even be going through right now and we don't know it. Well, it's um, interesting because I remember teaching undergrads about, about interpretation and hermeneutics, like how you interpret text. <coughs> Excuse me. And I put up, uh, these were millennials, and I put up a a old cartoon of an eagle, a bald eagle boxing a bear. Mm-hmm. None of them knew what it meant, not one. Now, this is something that, like you know, is a Cold War imagery, and, and during the Cold War, everybody once you saw that would have known what it meant. They're just uh, years away from that, and now nobody. And I always think about when you read Revelation or when you read the Hebrew Bible. And it's funny because you look at. It's often very concrete, right? Like, what is Israel supposed to eat? Clean animals, right? And what do clean animals have in common? You can herd them, right? Yeah. They can be shepherded, right? And and they're to be shepherded by the shepherd. What do all the unclean animals have? You can't domesticate them, like the lions and this and that. And so the pagan nations are represented by the unclean animals, right? It's very practical. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, well, look, they, they, these are forces that don't want to be shepherded. And you want to learn to be like the clean animal. Right, because you want to be a flock. Take and I, th- I think yourself, of a, yeah. yeah, so just just you finishing that thought, yeah, that, that so often I think when the Bible works with symbols, they're not like abstract like we think. They're actually pretty concrete, right? So so the, these these rules from um, from the Torah actually shape a psychological mindset, right? Like you want to be like the kind of animals that can be herded, right? by the good shepherd and you, you don't want to be like the unclean. Although this is what's so interesting though, with, uh, with prophecies and like Isaiah, where the lion lays down with the lamb, the hope is that God ultimately takes the unclean and the clean animals, the Gentiles and Israel and, and, and knits them together. So all those things are so concrete. Like they're not, they're not abstract, right? They're very practical. Yeah. Yeah. But the, but the Western educational model teaches us the opposite right and 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 doesn't it, it doesn't lend itself to understanding that and so you mentioned that that makes me think of um for years i was reading this passage of of i think it's part of the beatitudes and jesus is talking about money and then he just seems to go randomly off to the to, to you know in left field and he goes um if your eye is evil your whole body will be full of evil and then he goes right back to talking about money. And I'm like, what's that got to do with anything? It's because the Jews, that's that's the Jewish, first century Jewish expression for being tight-fisted. In English, it should be rendered, if your fist is tight, your whole body mm. will be evil. Mm. But we don't, nobody explained that to me. Mm. <laughs> right? Yeah. And and so I'm reading this. I'm like, I mean, I, I, I kind of get what he's saying. Maybe he's saying if you look at somebody real fierce like that, you know. But what's that got to do? I mean, it's it's random. No, it's not random. It's not random at all. Right? It's entirely consistent with what he's talking about. Yeah, there's a great book called Through New Eyes by, written by a guy named Jim Jordan. And he talks about how basically the Bible prefers symbols like trees and rocks and animals. And he's like, in the Western tradition, you know, starting with Plato, and going, we like abstraction. So we're like, well you want to get away from symbols into abstract ideas that could be translated into universal language. And so he says, that's fine. The problem is if you approach the Bible that way, you'll never understand the Bible because that's not the thought world of the biblical authors. They're thinking that when you use animals and rocks and trees and things like that, you don't need to go beyond that. Like that's actually, there's a preference for the concrete as opposed to the abstract. And so I think that like what you're saying is when we come with, with these kind of non Hebraic eyes, when we come to this like thought, with a kind of worldview or lenses that aren't sort of sympathetic 
to what the authors are doing. We're just not going to make any sense of it. Yeah. And so we end up with a, with a hollowed out version of what was intended. Um, you know, I, I mean, and, and I have seen just so many different versions of this guys I've seen time after time. And this is why I study that I'm learning to speak and write and read Hebrew. Um, I don't want it obscured by English, especially English spoken to me by people still trying to grab that abstract Mm -hmm. idea as opposed to the concrete reality. And and particularly the more that you discover how much the natural world is, is, is a brazen reflection of the spiritual one. Um, one of the things I've been teaching my sons recently is the concept of spiritual gravity, right? And this is Rabbi Lappin talks about this and it's, ancient Jewish wisdom. And it's basically the reflected in the natural world, uh, the second law of thermodynamics, which is entropy, right? All systems are breaking down, falling apart unless, right. They're, they're held together, pushed together, forged together by a superior source. Same thing with us, right? Sit alone by yourself in a room long enough. You'll start to think some destructive things, right? Which will translate to destructive actions force yourself in a course of, of, of action aligned with the intent behind the creation of your life, surround yourself with people who sharpen you, right? Engage in useful, productive, beneficial work that, that, that serves God by serving his other children and entropy doesn't have nearly the, the kind of strength that it does when you just sit there by yourself. I'm so interested historically, again, because there does seem to be this tension between the church and the synagogue. And yet, in the first century, I mean, you know, when I remember several of my professors when I was in seminary and graduate school saying, look, there wasn't first century Judaism or second temple Judaism. There was second temple or first century Judaisms. There were tons of them. You had the Essenes hanging out like the apocalyptic Amish. You had your Sadducees, you had the fire, you have all these different, um, you have sort of radical political zealot sort of, you know, you have all these different expressions and the only two that make it out of the destruction of the temple are what we think today of as modern Judaism, right? Descended from the Pharisees and, and becoming rabbinical Judaism and the early church, which is basically an expression of Judaism that's messianic, mm-hmm. right? And, and brings Gentiles in. But it's so interesting because none of the other forms of Judaism could make it past the destruction of the temple. They all folded, right? I mean, I, I mean that's a remarkable thing that, that Judaism and Christianity are the only two traditions that after the, the, the destruction of the temple, which Jesus kind of predicts, he says, look, the writing's on the wall. You, know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You kind of, you incite the pagans like they're inciting you. It's going to wind up with this whole thing being burnt down. And it, it comes true. And it's so interesting because we're, estranged in some ways and yet we have this close relationship because we're the only two movements that made it out of that destruction Mm -hmm. Uh, i recently read a great book i don't have it to hand i'd show it to you otherwise but i think i sent ev i think i might have sent you a picture of it it's called uh, restoration by daniel thomas lancaster and he is a messianic jewish um, pastor of a congregation in wisconsin but he's also one of the key uh, minds at First Fruits of Zion. And in that book, he makes a very interesting and what I see as a very reasonable case that originally it depended on the synagogue uh, at the time, but there were synagogues um, that were tolerant of the, the new messianic believers. In other words, they could still attend synagogue. Nobody shooed them out or, you know, or shut the doors and said, you're not welcome here. And then there were synagogues that weren't, right? There were ones that were hostile and said, no, you can't come in here. But to to whatever extent, wherever the way, as it was called at that point, was spreading, there were, there was a... This is the way? Yeah, there was a, there was a division. There was, there was always somewhere you could go and participate in it as, as a, as an expression, as you said, of Judaism. But the Romans, the way Rome destroyed Jerusalem, sacked it, burned it down, 
and the diaspora that resulted also created um, a tension where there had not been one. And some of the reasons he gave for it sounded very much like reasons that, that, that we might find here today in America in 2020 to begin avoiding certain groups of people because we know the odds are they're going to be hostile toward us. Not all of them, but I don't want to take the chance, right? Uh, and that goes on both sides of the equipment, you know, because there's just so much conflict right now. And I was like, and so the, Lancaster makes the point that because of this increasing separation of the two, it was almost like they got a lengthy divorce, right? And then, of course, you know, you have the, the, the um, oh, I can, Emperor Constantine and, you know, makes the church, the, the, the um, Christianity, the official religion of the Roman Empire. But, of course, there's all the dilution of the faith as a result of Rome becoming allied with it. And it's then. And that's the determinative factor, right? I mean, like, there's a great book by a Mennonite scholar, John Howard Yoder, called um, The Jewish Christian Schism Revisited. And he argues from this Mennonite perspective that he's like kind of, you know, he's, he's a pacifist and thinks Christianity shouldn't be associated with power. And he kind of argues that when Constantine comes in and adopts the faith, you get much harsher. Well, if it's not Christian, it's bad. Can it like, so, yeah. so there's not this organic um, room for dialogue between the church and the synagogue, which at times existed, right? Where people, I mean, you know, like John Christosom, the great fourth century preacher, he's telling his preachers, don't go to the synagogue. Which over the theater, right? I always joke all of John Christosom's sermons end the same way. Don't go to the theater, but like, but he's warning, he's worried about his congregants going to synagogue worship because they're reading the Hebrew Bible and they're like, oh wow, this is interesting. So if you're preaching against it, I mean, no one's saying, um, you know, you don't hear a lot of sermons where people are saying, don't marry chickens because it's not happening very often. <laughs> people are only exhorting people when it's happening. So, so it does seem there is this curiosity, even in the fourth century, where Christians want to learn about their heritage and want to go see what Jews are doing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's almost like the, the imperial establishment has to say, well, that's a no-no. We can't do that anymore. Lancaster made a similar point about Martin Luther, which I didn't realize this. I had never really studied his life closely. Um, it is not without merit the accusation that he was fairly anti-Semitic because yeah. after the fairly, Protestant yeah, yeah, Reformation. Fairly, fairly is, ge is generous. <laughs> I'm, a I'm a Luther fan, but fairly is generous. Yeah. Well, so after the Protestant Reformation spreads across Europe and particularly with the coinciding of the printing press, and now the Bible is widely available and people are learning to read it and they're reading it, Christians begin to keep Torah. And he didn't want that. Mm. Whoa, hold on a minute. The founder of the Protestant Reformation did not want the Christians keeping Torah. Why? Well, I, you know, that, that's, that's what happens when, you, when there's a, a longstanding state of cultural divorce, if you will, mm. and animosity and suspicion mm. when there doesn't need to be. Mm. Mm. It's like a marriage that should have stayed together because there was no infidelity. There was just misunderstanding. Yeah. So that's a perfect way to bring it together now, right? So now we're in this, this, this era of like, wait, why did we get divorced anyway? <laughs> you know, wait, can, can we talk about this? Can we, can we zoom about this? Can we come together? And ADD segue, I got this book, Paul, this one, that's the one you said. That's a great book. It's on the, it's on the list. It's Jewish Wisdom for Business Success. Great book. So, yeah, and what a great title like that. No one can deny, right? Like, oh, you know, those Jewish business guys. All right. But I think we're at this unique time of, again, the analyzing of like, why did we get divorced? And uh, on a fun ADD segue, there's a great documentary from the guy who did, um, I can see his face. I'm trying to remember his last name. He's a, it's on Netflix. He's the, the most, he's got like 14 Grammys. He's the most famous music producer ever. It's David something. Um, and he did Michael Jackson. He did Whitney Houston. He did um, Celine Dion. I mean, just in, Quincy Jones. 
No, not Quincy. Um, no, not Quincy Jones. Not Quincy David Jones. Foster. That's it. David Foster. David Foster. Okay. Yeah. Okay. David Foster. Yeah. So he has this epic documentary, and what he shares, he talks about his dysfunction, and he's a perfect example of what happens when you don't grow personally. But he's he's on his fifth marriage, and he said this in the documentary, like full confession. He goes, "I should have never divorced my first wife." And he was like, "I'm a runner. You know, when things get tough, I run, and I've just been running, 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 running." So I think we're at this journey now of where, as society, we're just like, wait, why did we get divorced anyway? Let, let's we look at this. Let's let's take a look at. But you mentioned something I wanted to bring up, and you said such a cool way. You said diaspora. I always put it together as diaspora or whatever. But a lot of people miss that understanding that that has really turned. Uh, I want to like old school um, missionaryism upside down. Because the old thing was, okay, I'm going to have to study for four years, learn the language. Then we're going to have to go over there and integrate ourselves in the country. And now it's like, I don't need to go anywhere. I can just go across the street and talk to the, for the lack of better, I talk to the Filipino family across the street and they still have relatives in the Philippines. And I can reach them better by reaching my neighbor than I can flying over to go live in the Philippines. And so now we have this whole diaspora I think on the faith side as well of like, I still remember as controversial it was, this was 20 ish years ago. We had some next door neighbors that were really cool, really sweet, really fun. And they were the Catholics, right? And there was this famous Catholic church right around the corner. And we were having our Christian young couple, young married couples Bible study. And we crossed the line. Okay. We crossed the picket line and we said, Hey, don't tell anybody. But will you come and speak at our Bible study? Can we just ask you questions, right? Mm-hmm. Like all the, all the questions you want to know about Catholicism, but you're afraid to ask, right? Or like, why do you have extra books? And why do you do this? And what's with the smoky thing that you flip around? And what about this? And he was so gracious, right? Mm-hmm. And just opened everything up to the fact where my bride and I actually went to one of their churches to experience it. We're just like, oh, I didn't know it was like that. Oh, I didn't know. I don't know. Okay, but that was, you know, 20 years ago, that was like, oh, don't, don't like, don't post. Don't post about that. You'll get in trouble. But I think now we're at this 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 stage for such a time as this, right? Perhaps it is such a time as this to re-examine the relationship and say, wait a minute, you know, as as the world is calling out for unity, on uh, as Bob put it at our our last event that we were at, Paul, the 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 shade of our skin tone, okay. Mm. As the shade of our skin tone is now this big thing in society, everybody's calling for unity. I think that same call can be made toward the faith world of like, okay, let's re-examine these paradigms, right? Like, why are we doing this anyway? Why are we, we, we breaking down this way? And I think perhaps as the world begins to reopen, I don't necessarily think, perhaps, this is, I'd love to get your guys' thought, perhaps there's a way where we're going to have to start sharing venues together. Because it's like, hey, the segregation, this is our building, this is our building, this is our building. It's like, well, now because of all this stuff, we don't really need all these buildings anymore. Can you know, can we share a building? You know, I'm, I'm, mm-hmm. I want to spiral it now towards where we are now in today's world. How do you see that coming to effect? I it, it, oh, go ahead, Paul. Sorry. Go ahead, Scott. Well, I was just thinking Rabbi Sachs yesterday when I was listening to him talked about after certain kind of terrorist events in England that he, he and Prince Charles got all the faith communities together. I mean, they didn't just have conferences to talk about what they could share that they did hospitality days where they would go to all these cities and just have open air fairs and serve each other, each other's religious food. Like the, the Muslims would bring this food. The Jews would bring this food. The Christians would bring this food. The Baha'i would bring this food. And they would, they would, they were doing these just hospitality days in these British towns to show that we, you know, we're in England together. It was a really beautiful kind of, mm. uh, you know, sentiment around just how can faith community. And he said, we're not ignoring our differences. And again, this is this whole thing about holiness is particular, but morality is universal. Yes. Saying we're not asking the Baha'i to say they're not be Baha'i or the Christians to not be Christian, or the Jews to not be Jews, but we're asking everybody to, to get invested in the shared morality of caring for one another and, you know, it, it, uh, you know, and, and actually being invested in one another's good. Uh, and that, I mean, I think is a powerful thing when we can come together and see 
And it almost makes you appreciate your own particularity more. Like, you know, when I dialogue with my Jewish friends, I'm fascinated. And, and there are things I learn. Like, one of the things I think I've learned most deeply that a lot of conservative Christians can learn from Judaism is in, in Judaism, there's not a strong tie between believing and belonging. So you kind of belong no matter what you believe. And so you can have a faith crisis for 10 years and still belong in the synagogue, right? Like, and, and still show up. Whereas I think in conservative Christianity, if you don't believe today, you don't belong anymore. We're putting you on the bad prayer list, right? Like, you know, oh, we're praying for you on yeah. the bad kind of prayer list. <laughs> and so, and so, but it, no, but it's funny because I say that to my rabbi friends. Like I was saying this on the podcast to my friend, Evan Moffick, and he's saying, Right he absolutely, uh, he's a very prominent rabbi in Chicago. He's like, but what I envy about you Christians is your ability to preach about God and theology. He's like, look, I'll tell you, my best attended sermons are about anti-Semitism. It's sadly, but you know, when there's anti-Semitic moments, people turn out when I'm addressing him. He's like, I'm envious for Christians that you can just go up and preach about theology. And so it's interesting how you can appreciate each other's struggles because I'm kind of looking enviously. Wow, I wish we were a little more relaxed about belief so that when somebody was like, hey, I don't know what I believe this week. That's okay. Just keep showing up. God still believes in you. Just keep showing up. And he's like, well, I wish we were more into belief. <laughs> so yeah. You kind of have these, like, some of the best um, ministerial conversations I've ever had were with rabbis. We're just talking shop. And like, it was, it's almost easier than talking with another Protestant minister or something. We're, it, it, because we're so distant, we're a little more distant, we, it was easier for us to talk about all of our frustrations with congregations and why, why does it work this way? Why does it work that way? It was really just rewarding. Mm. Yeah. What, what, um, what, what you're running into there is, uh, especially, you know, because of the, 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 the young men that I mentor, um, they feel pressure, even though it's not, I, I wouldn't characterize the church that we attend as, you know, pointing fingers, hellfire and damnation type of thing, if you don't believe the right things. But nonetheless, you feel that implication. And that's what sin does to us internally. And the, the problem, I think, for a lot of conservative Christians is we've bought into, Dallas Willard calls it this, this uh, client or consumer Christianity, where as long as you just believe the right things, um, you're good to go. Um, and the, the funny thing is that's not what the Bible says, but you know, that's, that's so, so whenever somebody comes along and says, I don't understand this, or I, I'm just having trouble believing this. People don't know what to do with it. And it's not that there's some special spell or, you know, prayer, you got to pray. Um, you, you just have to be genuinely more curious than the average person is in what's really going on in that person's life. Because every time I do that, these guys get closer to God, these young men. Mm. Every time I zip my lip and say, tell me more about that. Mm. Why do you feel that way? What, what is God saying to you? What do you think he's saying to you? What do you think your father would say to you about this? How do you think your father feels about you going down this route? They know the answers. Mm. They don't, it's, it's, it's self-evident when you are, when your heart is halfway open to God, mm. they don't need somebody beating them over the head with a stick to them, get in line. Right. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's not the kingdom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we've just blown that. I got to be honest with you. I think I, I've seen it happen enough times. Maybe we don't consciously get out there and, and crack the whip, but we haven't addressed it either. We've sort of just said, said, well, we don't do that, but then we don't really deal with your, your problem either. So can we talk about the elephant in the room? Yes. I have Which, no hair. I think it, exactly. That's yeah. If you're watching on Facebook or he has no hair, which is, but he's lovely with the hair. He's a young dashing Kojak. Yes! The lollipop. Yes! I, I, so can we talk about Israel? Cause I think this is one of the things that is so divisive in the United States. And also I think because of, I think among the left, because of issues related to Israel, anti-Semitism has become the socially acceptable form of discrimination on the left. Like you can, you can say anti-Semitic things and they are said um, by people like on the squad and things like that. 
it, it's not, you know, it, it's not just critiquing Israel's policies. It, it bleeds into anti-Semitism, and then you also you have, you know, people on the right that you know are accused of like, well, you just care about Israel, so that you know, if if all the borders get right, Christ will come back, or that kind of thing. I mean, it feels like Israel is this kind of political football, and it's incredibly significant politically. And I mean, in your own journeys with Judaism and exploring your faith, I mean, how have you, what have you learned about Israel? What are your insights about just our own relationship to the nation of Israel as, as the United States? That's a good question. Ev, you want to take a stab at it? <laughs> the, the closest, thing, yeah, closest thing I can get is... I totally resonate with the, the toxic Christianity about how do we, um, the, the toxic side of how do we force the issue, right? Like, how do we get the borders aligned so Jesus will come back? Or how do we, and I'm not putting them down, I, I got to go in the inner circle one time of Rick Warren's church, and this was, gosh, maybe eight years ago. And they were leaders in the movement and they had the big maps, like the old school maps with the pins in them. Like these are the unchurched groups in the world. They had like a legit count down to the ones, right? Like we know, you know, down to the number of the single person who has yet to, you know, have the gospel preached to them. And their whole thing was pushing this agenda because the second we get to that last person, you know, boom, Jesus is going to come back in this forced issue. And yet, even in the English, right, from the Greek, from, you know, the Hebrew thinking mind, right, even with these muddled translations that we have, it's still pretty clear in the New Testament to me that no one will know the day or the time. So this whole forcing the issue part is like a, is, is a total like raise the hackles for me. So for mm. me, when my hackles get raised, I just run the other way. I'm like, I don't like, I'm gone, man. You, you lost me, right? So this whole thing. Under, so for me, for Israel, it is on my uh, my travel board and my dream board that my bride and I, for the listeners, you know, the, the 23 million, give or take a few decimals of right or left, uh, that don't know, my bride and I get remarried in a different state or, or country every year. And so we are celebrating wedding number 27 in a few weeks. We are off to Nashville, Tennessee. Woohoo! But nice. On the board, we want to do a full-on is Israeli wedding, like old school, like whatever traditional that is, I'll wear whatever you tell me to wear. We want to have, we did get married in Hebrew once. We have a Jewish friend. He married us speaking Hebrew. It was really cool. But we want to go do something in Israel and just have that full experience. But as far as this whole, like, where does Israel sit on the political spectrum and all that stuff? Again, my ha every, every time it comes up, my hackles get raised and I just run the other way. So I'm always, to me, it's like this big question mark of, yeah, always that. What about Israel? How does that fit? How is it working that God is prospering them so much with all, right? Like this, it's since birth, right? They've been at war, right? You know, just this constant. So I'm, I'm in shock and awe of Israel and I'm just totally ignorant and just like, how does that work? So I defer to the scholar and the, the one on the quest of what, what do we, as an American, right? As, as an American who's cleansing from toxic Christianity, how do you process Israel? So I'll ask you, Paul. Well, um, I would say two things, you know, I, I, I'm not sufficiently educated to talk about, the subject you mentioned there with getting the borders right. I'll, I'll just say that I have not read. I have not read on that. Here's a couple things that come to mind. Um, Israel and the United States have a, a, a common, a commonality to them that most other nations do not. And that is that they, although Israel is founded in a, in an ethnic group, uh, the Hebrews, um, it is an ethnic group primarily based on its original founding documents and not, I mean, yes, you could say the seed of Abraham, but then uh, the Muslims are the seed of the Arabs, I should say, are the, are the seed of Abraham too, technically, right? Their, their, their mother was different, but they had the same father. And so are the sons of Keturah, which is Abraham's second wife. 
So the actual nation, um, and, it, and, it, and an interesting thing that I learned from Rabbi Lappin about this was that Abraham was pronouncing the land of Canaan as his possession long before he actually, his, his descendants ever actually took possession of it. Right, right. Setting, up the, his, setting up the setting up the little altars like uh, on these significant spots. I mean, it's almost like I've heard one scholar say it's almost like evangelism. He's sort of mm. putting these. The Lord owns mm. like, this is the Lord's land for His people, and He's setting these markers up to mark the, the land. Mm. Correct. And you you find this in the difference between the way He spoke about the land versus the way His servant spoke about it when he sent him to get a wife for Isaac. Um, and I, don't ask me to recite that. I don't remember exactly how it goes, but so Israel's heritage, their, their national identity is spiritual more than it is physical. And, and in a lot of ways, I think the United States mirrors that. And that's a big part of what's made us such a, such, so exceptional in human history. Uh, with all of the faults and failures, and I know we got them, and I'm not, I'm not for a moment pretending those don't exist. But you have to, you have to account for the amount of centuries that there was of uh, tyranny, dungeons, enslavement, war, war without end, internally, internally in nations, constant upheaval and separation, and nonstop. And then you get these last 260 years. And all of these revolutions in transportation and communication and medicine and technology and all of that, 200 years out of the last, you know, however many thousands we've been keeping record, there's something about that. I don't, I don't know that I could put it into words, but it's, to me, it's that the, both nations are founded on ideas, not principally on ethnicity. Mm. Now you take that into account. You look at the recent progresses that are all of a sudden happening where United Arab Emirates has normalized relations with them. Several others in the Arab League have refused to condemn it. They're not using the other political football, which is the Palestinians, um, to protest against it. The ideas are spreading. That's what I have to say. So if, if it doesn't physically happen... It's already happening spiritually. And, and that's, that's how I think of it. I'm like, well, we might not see it in our lifetimes, but it is prophesied. And it will spread through ideas. And the availability and the accessibility of content and examples for the Arab world to look at has never been more plentiful than it is now. Just the same way as when the Soviets, the people of the Soviet Union, got enough of America, you know, radio free Europe broadcast and Gorbachev came to the United States and saw these aren't a bunch of warmongering hate filled fanatics who want to blow us up with a nuclear bomb. They're ordinary people, right? They're getting the same thing now via the internet and however else mm -hmm. they get it. And the ideas are spreading mm -hmm. and they're good ones mm. for better or for worse. They're good ones. Mm. It's interesting too, because when you make the comparison between the United States and Israel, but the difference is we hammered out the ideas kind of at, at the same time we were in the land and organizing it. Whereas Israel hammers out the ideas for centuries, millennia, without a nation. I mean, this is, you know, it's interesting. Like there's a guy, a Jewish um, scholar, um, Hans Rosenzweig, who almost became a Christian, stayed Jewish. He was a German scholar writing in the early 20th century. Um, and his theory was that basically the reason why there's anti-Semitism is because Israel is an, is, is an ethnos, like a nation without a land. Like, and no other people can have an identity like this without blood and soil. And yet, you know, that, that, Israel, that, that the Jewish people hold together through covenant and election, right? Like that God just chose them. And so there's just not an example I can think of in world history of a group of people that existed without any home base. Mm. Like where, you know, where, where, you know, Carl Barth, the great 20th century theologian was like asked, give me a proof for God's existence. He just said the Jews. But you think about that, like what group of people can stay together through, like where are the, where are the Philistines 
or <laughs> where, where are the, where, you know, where are, you know, all of Israel's, you know, the, the Jebusites or all these people, where are they, right? They're subsumed into other nation states. What other people group can keep an identity for two millennia without a country, right? And, and, and have a concrete identity that actually then can be reintegrated into a nation state. I mean, that's just to me one of the, like one of the most unusual things in world history. When you think about it, there's like, I can't, I'm trying to think, could you think of another example? And I can't, I can't think of a single parallel. No. And, and here's another thing, Scott. And of course um, you are more scholarly on this than I am. So that means more dorky. It's a, <laughs> you are it's wearing a, the glasses. Just saying, just saying. It's an article of faith for me that I, but, but, it is held common, I'm told, at least among more orthodox observant Jews, that Hebrew is the Lord's language. In other words, when Adam was spoken to, he was spoken to in Hebrew. And when Noah was spoken to, he was spoken to in Hebrew. And there actually was, this is part of what Daniel Lancaster points out in that book, uh, Restoration. Um, there were laws that governed the descendants of Noah, particularly Shem, as he as his family uh, expanded. But they're called the Noahide laws, right? And there's seven of them. And if you look at them, they're almost identical to seven of the Ten Commandments. Um, there was a code, right? Because you find Noah cursing his son for doing things that the Torah wasn't around yet. So how could he know it was wrong? Well, the answer is they did know it was wrong. They just didn't have a written code. Right. And this is what Paul um, does, right? Paul appeals to at the Jerusalem council when they're trying to figure out how Gentiles should, what morals they should observe. And he comes from the Noah, the Noah Kid law, right? He's like, well, let's go sexual morality, um, no worship vitals and don't eat things with blood, which if you're from the uh, United Kingdom Isles, blood pudding, you might want to argue with that. Your blood pudding, <laughs> blood sausage, yeah, <laughs> your blood sausage and blood pudding. But there you go. Yeah, yeah, um, and that's so. I'm trying to think where I was going with that now, but uh, <laughs> um, th- 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 that was always around, and the the answer that I find the most convincing as to how they've survived that long is that they are founded primarily on an internal code of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable to a higher authority than any of us can attain. Mm. Mm. And speaking into that is, as you talked about Israel being the only right without blood and soil and all of that, when it, comes to the United States, and you you mentioned it, Paul, even in this disdain, right? Like, despite our black eyes and our faults and all this, but the one thing that America has that no other country that has ever existed in the history of recorded time is America is the only country to ever fight a war to end slavery. No, you know, from the beginning of time, you know, Genesis chapter, what, 12, 14, right? We started with slaves, Right. And we get all the way, right, recorded history, you know, all the way through we get to this last, you know, seven, you know, 1850, right, 150 years ago-ish, right? Mm-hmm. And we are the only country in the history of the world to fight a war specifically to end slavery. And it's like, wait a minute. So, yeah, these these parallels of, you know, we, we need about five more shows. So um, I will wrap it up here and appreciate this, you know, and I, I think the the ethos of this show is the the collaboration, right? Just mm. opening the discussion and, and having the the tables of like, hey, let's collaborate because so many people want to make it about this or that, right? There's two sides of the story. Well, no, there's all sides of the story, but it's like, no, competition is toxic. No, it's not. But by itself, yes. And the, the, the salt analogy was so beautiful it's like competition is needed competition is healthy with collaboration so i'm honored to learn laugh and love and collaborate maybe we add that to the show title and <laughs> to collaborate with you we Paul could just be we could with llc yes LIS, yes and with the scholar a resident scholar scott Ken jones so gentlemen appreciate the time and maybe maybe 
we can work on getting again with Paul's agent, getting it back for part two, because this, be this is actually more like a five part series. But I appreciate you guys so much. I'm in. Anytime so you want to do it, let's let's get it on the calendar and uh, do the sequel. Woohoo! Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Learning, Laughing, and Loving with Evan Money and Scott Jones. If you like what you've heard here, please do something for us. Go to iTunes and write a review. Give us a rating. Tell people. Share it on social media. If you found something you love here, share the love and goodness with the world. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>